First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. It's page 987 in your pew Bible. Let me read this text of scripture and then let's talk about the topic of eschatology. The word of the Lord says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Four weeks ago, we mentioned that our Revelation 3.10 text has been one of the most disputed and divisive verses in Scripture over the last century plus, especially in the American church. It is the clearest doorway in the book of Revelation through which we enter into the discussion of the rapture that we just read about from 1 Thessalonians 4. And we've come to recognize that is a volatile issue, the timing of the rapture. So, as with politics and religion more generally, we tend to avoid this topic in public discourse, being polite Christians as we are. But there's a problem with that, isn't there? The problem is... This subject is called in Scripture, and rightly called, our blessed hope. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Making it seem like a topic on which we should be well informed and often conversant. Right? For our own good. We ought to love this topic and speak of it often. Just as Paul charged when he wrote about it, to these Thessalonians, as we just read, right here in verse 18. Encourage one another with these words. However, even though we can surely affirm that the topic of the end times is usually accompanied with strong feelings, that doesn't always seem to include sufficient supporting knowledge to steer clear of arguments and even accusations. Not to mention to provide mutual encouragement toward worship and obedience, endurance in the faith. Friends, I'd like us to move past that. I'd like us to move past that, to strengthen our knowledge on this subject. Not trying to become experts, but just trying to become well-informed on what God's Word says and on the different ways his children have understood it through history. 
So toward that end, today's sermon will be a bit different than normal, as I said. It'll be a bit more teachy. It'll be a bit more like a a Bible school classroom than like a, a Sunday morning sanctuary. But I think, I think that's for good cause and with good reason. I think we'll be edified and encouraged. I don't think we'll just learn something. But I think we'll be edified and encouraged not by mining necessarily exegetical truths straight from a single text of Scripture, but more by assembling theological truths that have resulted from putting a number of different texts of Scripture together. That is, after all, what systematic theology is. One of the the areas of study that is so important to be familiar with is just categorizing Scripture under, (laughs) sorry, atemporal categories. Uh, Biblical theology traces the storyline of Scripture and how it unfolds through history. Systematic theology extracts from the Scripture its teaching on certain topics and puts them together under headings. It's systematic. That's how they differ. And so it's important to do that. And so this morning's exercise is a little more systematic theology than biblical theology. But we do both almost every Sunday as we unpack texts of Scripture together. I've given you some notes today. They're in your bulletin. And I will tell you that there are four pages there. A fuller set will be available on our website accompanying the recording of this sermon, just expanded on this same outline, about seven pages total of the size pages that you have there. But there's a four-page helpful insert in the bulletin this morning. And I'm not going to walk through these notes as though they are lecture notes. I'm just going to give you a sense of what you're holding in your hands and some instruction, I believe, on how best to use it. So we'll be doing a flyover, and we'll drop into the, into the outline more in a more detailed way at different points, but at other times we'll just be moving past it a bit more quickly. Again, that because of our context this morning in the Sunday worship service. So let's take a look at that handout together. Don't worry about looking at the screens. There won't be any projections this morning. We're just going to use this printed handout as we go through it. And I'm going to walk through it a section at a time, again, saying more or less, depending on um, how that contributes to our call this morning which is to re-engage on this subject and make it a point of fellowship and encouragement among us. So, walking through this handout now. Section 1. We've covered this before when we preached Revelation chapter 1. It was actually part 2 of this series in Revelation. So you can find the listing of these different categories of approaches to, interpretive approaches to Revelation in the, the sermon notes on the website from that Sunday. Now they also appear in the question and answer, excuse me, the question and answer that's on the uh, website about the book of Revelation. Somebody asked further questions about that, so these four categories are listed again um, there, and that could be helpful to you in understanding not only each one of them individually, but to appreciate how all four of them work together as the context in any given passage of prophetic scripture warrants. I I read a quote that morning, and that quote is available both in the extended notes and uh, on the website, uh, and the the Q&A section on the website. So it tells us that these four approaches, we don't use exclusively one of them, but we use all four at different times, depending on the 
uh, the context in the prophetic writing at the time. So I won't spend any more time on that. We've essentially done that. Section 2 now addresses how we understand the millennium. This thousand-year reign of Christ that's mentioned in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, which is the most disputed subject across the board in the study of the end times. When you're going to try to begin understanding the end times, you start with the millennium, and what do you think that is, and how do you think that works? Right? Um, the key question is, is this passage in Revelation 20 describing a literal reign of Christ that will happen on earth? Or is it one more of the symbolic images that John employs, an apocalyptic, apocalyptic image of the reign of Christ over his people between the first and second comings of Christ? Which one of these are we talking about? And there are three main views on the millennium that you should be familiar with. We here at Grace Church of DuPage unapologetically and unswervingly hold to premillennialism. We believe there will be a literal reign of Christ on earth, perhaps literally a thousand solar years, although that's not entirely certain. It'll probably be at least that, quite likely longer, if it's any different from that, because of the apocalyptic text in which it appears. 1,000 is so much more likely in Revelation to be a symbolic number than a literal number. A, a very capable um, scholar once said, if that 1,000 years is intended to be taken literally as a 1,000 solar years, then it's the only number in Revelation that's intended to be taken literally. So it may be, but it may just be an extended period of time. It's 10 to the third. It's a symbolic number of completeness and lengthy duration as compared to one hour of trial that will come on the earth. Surely in Revelation 3 verse 10 we don't think that the tribulation will only be one hour long. But that kind of interplay between numbers is helpful in understanding Revelation. They're symbolic numbers. It doesn't mean that they're teaching non-literal truth. They are literally true. But how do we understand what they mean? So a thousand solar years, perhaps, or even a longer period of time, following Jesus' second coming and prior to his last battle against the enemies of God, prior to his final judgment of the unconverted and of Satan, that's Revelation, the second half of Revelation 20, and prior to his establishment of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 20 and 21. Premillennialists believe a literal reign of Christ on earth prior to those times. We believe the text that you see listed there, Isaiah 65, Zechariah 14, along with several others, fill in what this millennium will actually look like, what life in that season of time will be like. Others, though, see Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6 as another symbol in the book. They believe the rule of Christ, either within the hearts of all believers on earth, so over the church, or over the saints in heaven who have died, or over both, and more likely both, they believe that is occurring right now, a spiritual reign of Christ over his people, spanning the time between the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the return of Christ. This word amillennial denotes no millennium, but that's not really an accurate depiction 
It denotes no literal reign of Christ on earth prior to the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, but amillennialists do believe that Christ is reigning during this period. So it's not that they don't believe in the millennium. They believe that there's a different nature to that millennium. It's a spiritual rule, not a literal rule on earth. A third major view here that often doesn't get the respect it deserves is post-millennialism. This is the belief that the millennium will be ushered in not by victory in a final battle against evil, but by the eventual success of the Great Commission. Jesus even said, you'll be my witnesses. Go, proclaim the gospel, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. This is how postmillennialists understand it. The Great Commission will succeed. The world will be Christianized through the proclamation of the gospel. And these folks do about as much detailed exegesis as any group we'll be acquainted with. The power of the gospel will increasingly be displayed through the church until Christianity becomes the dominant worldview. This is how postmillennialists see it. For the eternal kingdom is established. So Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Psalm 110. The kingdom is delivered up to the Father through the finished work of Christ being preached through the church. That's how they understand it. The thousand year reign of Christ then here is understood much the same way as it is in amillennialism. Now, we might struggle hearing that postmillennialism is deserving of respect. I can understand that to our ears that might sound strange coming from the pulpit of Grace Church of DuPage. But can I tell you that Jonathan Edwards held this view? He's often called the greatest theologian in American history. And we love his writings here at Grace Church. John Calvin was an amillennialist. As best we can determine, he did not write a commentary on Revelation. But he also didn't spiritualize the scriptures. Read John Calvin's commentaries. They are refreshing. 400 years later, each of these views is rooted in a rigorous and conscientious handling of scripture. We differ at certain key points. Those points can be identified and discussed. But all of us are just seeking together to discern what God has said in it. That said, I return to say we at Grace Church of DuPage are un unapologetically and unswervingly premillennial for particular reasons. But our reasons for holding that view are not strengthened by discrediting or seeking to those who hold other views. It's by understanding what they're saying and dialoguing with them and pointing out why we differ on the points on which we differ. Millennium is really important, so I've taken a few extra minutes with that one. Let's move into section three. This identifies five approaches to biblical interpretation that are especially helpful to understand when we're studying eschatology. The first three of these, listen carefully here, the first three of them hold to premillennialism. Let me identify three ways that they differ, even though all three are premillennial. 
They hold slightly different views, each of these three, on one of three things. First, the relationship between Israel and the church. So that's the old covenant and new covenant people of God. The question there is, is it one unbroken people of God from Old Testament into new? Or does God finish his work with the Jews, begin working with the church, and then come back and work with the Jews again later? So one of the places where these three, though they are all premillennialists, differ with one another is just how they understand the people of God. Second, the nature of the kingdom of God. Is it entirely now? That's what the amillennialist says. Christ is ruling over the church now. Is it entirely future? That's what dispensational premillennialists say. The millennium is the, the millennium is the kingdom of God. And so it hasn't come yet in any form. Or is it now and not yet? It has both arrived and that there is more of it still waiting to be delivered. You've heard us talk from this pulpit often enough to know that we do not believe the kingdom is either now or not yet. It is both now and not yet. But that's one of the things on which these three differ. And the third is how best to interpret different genre of Scripture. What does it mean, literal exegesis? Taking the words of Scripture and just believing that the most simple and clear meaning is the one we hold to. We surely affirm that. But we also recognize that different genre of Scripture are handled a bit differently. We're seeing that in apocalyptic. And we were talking about it a few moments ago with numbers being more symbolic than literal in apocalyptic literature. That's one example. Is it literally a thousand? Or is a thousand an image of a really long and full time? So those are three areas where the first three categories under section three, threes are wild on this one, uh, differ from one another. The fourth category is a, a newer addition that we've made in these notes. I've been, I've been accumulating these notes over many years now. This one was just newly added this past couple of weeks. And I appreciate some help that I've had on researching this to make sure that, um, that we're handling this uh, uh, responsibly. This fourth category is a subset of postmillennialism, as you can see, but we can actually run into it quite often these days, even though it's a smaller subset. Um, you, you see it especially among those who have a strong emphasis on electing Christian leaders for government, thinking that we need to Christianize the government in Washington and in Springfield, and in so doing, we usher in a more Christian life. This is actually part of postmillennial eschatology. But the commitment of this group goes beyond just being salt and light, although they have every passion of proclaiming the gospel and being salt and light in their community until Jesus returns. They are actually, though, rooted in this view that the Great Commission will eventually transform the world. So there's a different sort of strategy to what they're doing in their political action. There's a more intentionality to it and it's built on and rooted in their eschatological view, right? So the first three are more premillennial. The last is postmillennial, or the fourth is postmillennial. And finally, there's a description of covenant theology. And boy, this is a massive area. But uh, this approach to biblical interpretation is really what yields a more amillennial or postmillennial eschatology. And you can see some of its distinctives there. We can't take the time to start unpacking this, though, because it is a very broad and big category of biblical interpretation, right? We can talk about it further at some point. But there, it's at least summarized for you 
in a proper category, I think, to, to just appreciate some of what it is about. Section 4. Section 4 addresses the different views on the timing of the rapture. A brief summary is given about how each of the three main views, pre, mid, and post, understands the catching away of the church that we just read about in 1 Thessalonians 4. Included in this discussion is the question of how we understand the tribulation period, that hour of trial that is coming on the whole world that Revelation 3.10 mentions. Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 to 27 is often central in this discussion. The key question there and that's where Daniel is talking about his 77s and they're broken up in 62 and, 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 uh, and 7 and, and one final group of 7. Many believe that one final group of 7 is pointing to the last 7 years of world history, the, what's called the Great Tribulation. The key question then here is Daniel describing the final seven years of world history or something other. We can't take time to get into that this morning either because that is a very involved subject. But that's the key question. And it and related topics will come up as we continue on in this series on Revelation. But here we just need to define that that's, that's a key question in terms of talking about the timing of the rapture is how that particular passage from Daniel plays into the question. Now there are also, there's also a fourth view on the timing of the rapture, pre, mid, and post, that rapture is called pre-wrath. I mention that here because it was birthed right here at Grace Church of DuPage uh, in our basement through some teaching of Bob Ben Campen back in the 90s. It's a variation of the pre-tribulation view when it comes to how the view is formed and what its distinctives are. And I would actually favor it over the pre-tribulational view, but my, my differences with it run deeper than just its argument for the timing of the rapture and into other issues that actually distinguish dispensationalism from historic premillennialism. I think there are questionable hermeneutical roots that yield that view, that yield both it and pre-tribulationism. And again, we can talk about those as that would be helpful but this view is worthy of mention just because it has gained a bit of a hearing here and there, and it's part of our own church history. So it's good to know about that and to appreciate the work, the hard work that's been done in this area. Bob wrote a, a, a lengthy book, The Sign, on this subject, and um, a worthy read. Moving on to section five, this poses the question, how do we decide what we believe? How do we decide what we believe? And if you notice that I didn't take a position on the timing of the rapture, that's all right. Uh, I did a couple of weeks ago. I told you what I favor. But here, we're actually, remember, just trying to acquaint you with the different views. Okay? We're not going to take time to read through each one of them. But this morning's intent is not to favor one of those over the other. With premillennialism, we, we need to because we take a position on that as a church. We don't take a position on the timing of the rapture. We're not going to get caught in that discussion this morning. But I want you to understand how the different views, what, what they see, where they anchor into Scripture, and what their priorities are. And that's what those brief descriptions are for there. So, section five. The question, how do we decide what we believe? 
And here's where we want to start drilling in a little bit more. How do we decide what we believe? I think there are three important points to consider here, and you can see them listed briefly there. First of all, the way we make our decision on these things is through the study of Scripture and hermeneutics. That's that word again. Hermeneutics is just the, the, the principles of interpretation used to interpret the Bible and to make sure you're doing it consistently. Hermeneutics is a field of study in the handling of all documents and especially is needful in interpreting ancient documents. And so the, the system of interpretation that, that gives us a sense that we are handling the scriptures in an internally consistent fashion, those principles are summarized under the heading hermeneutics. Those are hermeneutical principles, principles of interpretation. The differences between the views that we've discussed today so far should generally be understood as hermeneutical differences. The differences in how we interpret the Bible, particularly how we handle the genre of Scripture. Much difference in the interpretation of the book of Revelation comes if we understand that some want to interpret every sign that they read there literally and attach it to something literal in the world versus seeing those signs and images as we talked about having been drawn from the Old Testament and bringing with them the content that is filled in from there. So do you fill in the content of these symbols from the world around you or primarily from the Word of God? And I would say primarily from the Word of God. But there have been generations of the church in America that have been taught that you, you interpret those symbols by what you see in the world around you. That generates a lot of difference and a lot of conflict in the interpretation of the book of Revelation. But one of the principles of hermeneutics is that Scripture interprets Scripture. And if there's a reference or even just a resonant vibration with one of the symbols in Revelation that comes from the Old Testament, we go there first to see what it says and to anchor that into the revealed an authoritative word of God as the basis for our understanding it. So, um, that was a little extra at no additional cost. Uh, the differences between these views that we've talked about today is generally a hermeneutical differences, but the uh, hermeneutical differences, but the differences are also rooted in how we understand the kingdom of God, as we were talking about before. Is it now? Is it not yet? Is it now and not yet? It also has to do with how uh, we fundamentally understand the relationship between the Old Covenant and New Covenant people of God, as we already mentioned. You take different views on that, it's going to land you in different places in terms of your understanding of the end times. So those are really more theological differences. That's why we say the study of Scripture, which then includes the formation of theology and the study of hermeneutics, you just start reading on these things. You just read Scripture. Blessed are those who read aloud the word of this prophecy. Isn't that exactly how Revelation began? And I sat with a couple in their living room just this past week who has read Revelation over and over and over again together in recent years. And it's so, it's so interesting to then enter into the conversation because the images and flow of the book are in their minds at this point. We can actually start 
fitting them together and working toward an understanding of how, how, to, how to hear them, how to respond to them. We read, we study. So don't think you have to pull out the big tomes off the shelf and stack them up on your desk and be reading theology. Read the Word of God and read it and read it and read it and get familiar with it and recognize the blessing that Jesus said is ours when we read especially this book aloud. Hear it. Let it get familiar in our ears. So, the study of scripture and theology and hermeneutics, that introduces point number two, the study of theology, doctrine, and church history, a little more detailed now. Once we've established a solid biblical hermeneutic, we begin to put together various passages that, that shape our theology and doctrine. Primarily, we handle texts here that we all know apply to the subject at hand. So this morning we read from Revelation 3, we read from 1 Thessalonians 4. We know those passages have something to say about the end times and about what we can expect to see there. But we must also then go on to say in the notes here, test our thoughts against more distantly related passages. And this is where we can easily go wrong. We become selective in the passages that we're willing to incorporate into our theological formulations, which in turn then breeds division. And church history is filled with stories of divisions just like this. Many times I've heard a teacher on end times exegesis or theology be asked the question, well, how does this particular passage fit into what you are saying? And the answer is, it has nothing to do with it. I've heard that many times. Friends, that's not the case. God's word is a unit. If it has nothing to do with the subject at hand, show how it has nothing to do with the subject at hand. Talk about what the text is actually saying and why that doesn't reshape what you're talking about theologically. But if someone's reading the text and it reminds them of another text that seems to be related or saying the same thing, there's a genuine question there. How do you bring this text that's a little bit more distantly related into the subject that you're studying? The answer is never from the beginning. It doesn't have anything to do with it. It does. It's the Word of God. Right? So then you press on and you look at that. You discuss it together and you see how it shapes your thought formation. Bottom line then, from these first two points in the answer to our question, how do we decide what views we favor? Um, just what we're doing today is a key part of the answer. We're modeling it just a bit this morning on how to read eschatology and appreciate it and discuss it without letting it turn into entrenchment and argument. We study, we familiarize ourselves with the range of options, understanding that each of them reflects deep and diligent study in God's Word, such that it's not likely to be discredited with a soundbite. So we keep at it. We don't give up. We keep reading God's Word and asking questions and discussing and pondering and praying for the guidance and the enabling of the Holy Spirit. And in that process, we learn to think more biblically in this category, and we learn how to encourage one another with these words. 
But if, even as we're moving through all of that, we still can't decide, or we find that we lack what it takes, feel like I just can't spend enough time with this to satisfy my own questions, is there something we can do in that place? And that's where principle number three here, I think, is actually helpful. Consider institutional loyalty. This is what my church believes. That's what I mean by institutional loyalty. If we're not able to work out such disputable matters on our own, then institutional loyalty, or you might say institutional identity, I stand with my church on this. That offers an acceptable basis of assurance that we are believing responsibly regarding the subject at hand. This both relies on and fosters mutual trust within the relational network of the church. We, we, we start building a, a, a theological identity as a body of believers. But we also then need to guard against the false confidence in the ideological entrenchment that can develop there as well. So there's a potential downside, but there's a potential upside in saying, what do I think about this? I don't know. Let me go read the Grace Church doctrinal statement and spend some time there. And then you'll come back to me or to one of the elders and you say, there's a couple of things here that we didn't address. Well, yeah, you're right, we didn't. Why is that? Well, there's a range of options there and we, we don't land on one of them. We welcome into the fellowship of this body those who believe somewhat differently on certain subtle points. And we've taken a stand on the ones that we believe are important to take a stand on. That can be helpful as well. It can end up giving an illustration of how you can have the same sort of congenial conversation with others on this subject. So, in this third category of institutional loyalty, we need to be careful, but we do need to understand this is God's word, and he has called us into this fellowship together. It's no small matter, I would say, where God has called you to worship and serve in a local body of believers. I think you can trust him in that leading and in that calling with the fact that this is what my church believes. I've identified with my church, and now I'm letting my church form my thoughts and my understanding of Scripture. That said, with its both blessings and warnings, section 6 then says, what do we hold in agreement and I'm glad I was able to rework the notes here to actually get that list in your hands in this short outline, not just the long one. What do we hold in agreement? And I would say many important things. In fact, we have so much more in agreement than in disagreement with most anyone who has any interest at all in this discussion. So that which distinguishes us from one another is exceedingly small, and should not be allowed to divide us just for the sake of listening to it. I'm going to read through this list, and, and it doesn't stop here. I stopped because I didn't have any more room in my notes at the moment. But here are a list of things we actually agree on with everybody that we've listed in this text this morning, in these notes. Right? So nobody, none of the categories that we've put, that we've included here, would differ on any one of these points with where we stand. First of all, biblical authority, the inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility of the Word of God, and literal 
hermeneutics. Interpreting God's word, word by word. And by the way, there are people in every one of these categories who don't hold these. There are such things as heretics, right? There are people who are sort of under a category, but who just were looking for problems in the word of God, for instance. So what I'm saying is the people who hold to these views and hold to them responsibly don't differ on any of these things. So there's the first section. We all hold to a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is the creator of all, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, God the sovereign king over all the kings of the earth. We believe in fulfilled prophecy. We believe in miracles and the virgin birth. We have a sinless Savior who is fully divine and fully human. We believe in his bodily resurrection as a promise for our own. We believe in his promised second coming and eternal judgment on the backside of that. We believe in the new creation, the new heaven and new earth. We believe in substitutionary atonement. Jesus died in our place on the cross. We believe in justification by faith, that familiar Reformation mantra, but with all of the five solas of the Reformation. Sola gracia, sola fide, sola scriptura, solus Christus, soli deo gloria. Just grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, Christ alone, salvation in his name alone, and all things in this universe to the praise of God's glory. We hold to the historic creeds. And as I said, we could continue on. This is where we stand together. Why would we fight over end times differences? For that which distinguishes us from one another is exceedingly small and should not be allowed to divide us. As we finish then, section 7, some final thoughts on eschatological discussion. I'm going to run through these quickly. These are not in your notes, I don't believe. I actually have a copy of that. Uh, no, they are not, but I've told you here again that these notes will be available with the recording of this sermon on our website so you can get these um, six points that I'm going to read through really quickly here. Some final thoughts on eschatological discussion. First of all, the importance of it. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. First Peter 3, that's where we need to, to stand. We need to be familiar enough with it to tell people why we believe what we believe about the end times, recognizing that every view cannot be correct. But we, here's why we stand where we stand. That leads to number two. Give that answer with gentleness and respect from the same text, recognizing that it very well could be your view that's wrong. Merrill Unger once said that if he arrives in heaven and finds that dispensationalism is wrong, he'll just say, Father, forgive us for having been so naive as to have believed your word. I would say that's not helpful. That's not the attitude we want. I appreciate a confidence in one's view, but these are disputable matters, and we can see that in church history. Let's be gracious with one another. Third, Regardless of your belief, live in such a way that you'll be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. 1 John 2, 28. Hear the instruction of Revelation 
And the instruction of Revelation, if you have not been able to discern it so far, it'll become clear as we move into the difficult passages now. Our series title is the theme, Worship, Obey, Endure. That's what we're being called to in the book of Revelation. There's the theme. Worship, obey, endure. You might even add a fourth, hope. We win. That's good to know. Fourth, we study end times events so that we can understand all that Scripture teaches us about Jesus, about our salvation, about the kingdom of God, about his glory, about his purpose and his ways. Don't try to write all those down there on the website. Don't settle for knowing less of all of this than you could know. That's why we're here. To learn these things and to reflect them to the world that desperately needs them. So press hard into this subject, especially while we're studying it as a church. Fifth, in Ephesians 4, there are two different kinds of unity. There is a unity that we're granted in Christ by grace. And then there's also a unity that we grow up into. And both of those appear in chapter 4. The thing that impedes this unity, this growing up into, is sinful disruption of the grace-granted unity that we have in Christ. Someone has said that the millennium is a thousand years of peace that Christians like to fight about. <laughs> That's a good statement. And as we fight over it, our unity is disrupted, and we don't grow straight and tall together. So let's get past that. Let's long for Jesus' return together, shall we? Let's talk about it. Sixth and finally, to the guys on the road to Emmaus, Jesus said, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. We don't want to hear that from Jesus, do we? Foolish and slow of heart to believe what the word of God has said. Folks, we don't want to be there. Now, this sermon is intended to help us become comfortable and conversant, just a bit more comfortable and conversant, once again with regard to the blessed hope of all believers. Yes, eschatology is a complex subject with a lot of moving parts, but what you hold in your hand there and the somewhat extended set of notes that will be available to you on the website, that is intended to help us cut through that complexity just a bit and understand this area just a bit better. You don't need to know everything about everything in this field, but if you can have a basic understanding of the three major views of the millennium, for instance, and that among premillennialists there's this question of the timing of the rapture, and that you can hold different views on these things without being a heretic or a theological rabble-rouser. And yes, there are heretics and theological rabble-rousers out there, as we said before. There are many of them, in fact. John said there are many antichrists, 1 John 2. But as you get more and more comfortable with the true categories of, of biblical dialogue on this subject you'll begin to recognize falsehood much more easily, just like we do in every area of our Christian growth. And in fact, 
those areas of falsehood might start sticking out like a sore thumb. So my charge this morning is let's re-engage with one another about Jesus' promised return, about his, his coming on the clouds and power and great glory, the way he described it in Matthew 24, about our blessed hope, the way Paul described it to Titus, about this central and unrivaled focus of our lives. And as we dialogue on these things together, let us encourage one another with these words. Let's lift one another's eyes to the return of Jesus and hopefully look forward to it with joy and great anticipation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. And as we pray, musicians can return to the platform and communion servers to the front. Heavenly Father, there is much here that we've covered this morning, and we know that in a sense it's too much for one Sunday, but it's so important to see it as a unit and then for each of us to be able to engage it at our own points of interest and points of entry. Father, I pray that our time together this morning might strengthen our confidence in the truth and the authority of your word and in our respect for one another, and in what a challenge it is to answer the finer questions, but what a sanctifying exercise that is as God's people are pressed into the Word of God together for discussion and for the formation of our thought according to your Word. Father, bless us as a body, I pray, in that pursuit. And as we continue this study through Revelation, I pray that you would help us to grow in likeness to Jesus, to grow in anticipation of his return, to be strengthened against any manifestation of persecution that you make so clear there as part of the life and ministry of the church. And all of it, just as we have seen, Father, to the praise of your glory. Thank you that you've placed us by your grace on the winning team. Help us to rejoice in that now. In the name of our victor, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, whose death on our behalf we now remember. Amen.